we're going to we're going to go ahead and turn in our bibles to Matthew chapter 17 Matthew chapter 17 and i've been thinking a lot about this this whole passage this whole episode of the man bringing his son demon possessed to Christ and actually to his disciples first but his disciples were unable to to help to do anything about it and uh, Jesus had a, a, a rebuke to his disciples. In other words, he expected them to be able to do something about it. And uh, and then he gave some uh, admonition at the very end of the whole episode. But I've been thinking a lot about this because on uh, Friday uh, of this week, I'm going to be traveling up on Thursday, actually, but uh, going to Grand Rapids and I'm going to be bringing a, a a session on this passage, and it's at a conference up there called Revive Us. It's called Revive Us, and I I get the impression that it's run mostly by a group of uh, younger people, and uh, that's good. That's encouraging. I don't know the group that well, but I'm sure there's some that I do know, but I'm going to be giving a talk uh, alongside of uh, Dr. Beaky. And so he's going to be bringing a, a message on, on revival and what is revival and, and going into uh, some depth there. And then I'll be bringing a talk on specifically on prayer and how it relates to revival. Uh, That's, you know, where my burden is, as, as you know, and this is something that we started uh, back in 2019, uh, with uh, with revival in mind, so uh, my my goal, I I didn't really want to do this. As some some of you may know, my personality is not. I don't jump into these things with great eagerness. But I was, I reluctantly relented, and I did so with with one thing in my mind. I have one goal. And that is to try to encourage, not to guilt or force or coerce, but to encourage God's people to um, increase in their in their lives in some capacity uh, corporate prayer. And that is my only desire. My only goal is to encourage God's people towards corporate prayer, uh, even in a small step heading that direction. So I, I would appreciate your prayers for me. It's something that I'm not comfortable with at all. Uh, as Just like Tom, here we are, lay people, right? We have no business um, doing some of these things in a sense. But, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that back in 1857, uh, we had the Third Great Awakening. Jeremiah Lamphere was a layman. He was a he was a um, he ran a business there in New York City, and he was a layman. He was not a preacher, and in fact, the prayer meetings that started back then they were often called the layman's noonday prayer meeting because they were for the most part um, run by and operated by in, in in many ways just lay people, and that's the way it was for many years. Uh, 
which is kind of nice and interesting because this prayer meeting is is very similar in that sense. We're all just average Joes, regular folks, uh, men and women uh, across the world, and we have some preachers in our midst, and we're very thankful for that. But for the most part, we're we're lay people, and we have a great burden and a desire to see more done for the kingdom, and this is our expression of that. So anyway, Friday, appreciate your prayers if you think of it. I will definitely be in, um, in, in waters that I'm not familiar with. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to open the word, yes, but also to seek your face. And I pray that we would have instruction as you've instructed my own heart this morning, uh, thinking about this passage. I pray that we would have instruction from thy word Thy word is truth, and it is true. It's so true, and everything else is false. Help us, Lord, to receive it as truth, and then to apply it in our lives, to obey it, and to take action upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 17, this is the very well-known episode of the father bringing his demon-possessed son to Jesus' disciples, they were unable to do anything with him, and Jesus uh, then steps in, and he rebukes his disciples in verse 17 by saying, Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Jesus rebukes the devil. Uh, the child is cured. The disciples are asking, why could we not cast him out? Jesus in verse 20 essentially says, unbelief, unbelief. And uh, in verse 21, he says, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And that that verse uh Prayer and fasting, that is what I'm going to be talking about at the conference. But for today, I thought I would be uh, dwelling a little bit on verse 17, where it says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Now, <clears throat> this, is a, this is an interesting phrase. Uh, these, are, these are two words that Jesus used in response to what was happening or not happening uh, at this time. And I think it's, it's to our benefit to really understand and, and try to glean as much as we can from these two words. We understand faithless. We understand what it means to be faithless. And in fact, the father himself later on uh, in another passage in Mark nine, he says he was struggling with this idea of faith. He said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And that is uh, the cry of probably all of our hearts. But what is this word perverse? Why is Jesus saying, oh, perverse generation? How does that have anything to do with faithlessness? If you look up the word perverse, as I did, it basically just has the idea of that which is crooked. So perverse has the idea of that which is crooked. And if you're just, if you are willing to just meditate on that, that which is 
crooked, that which is not straight. Then you'll begin to see, as I saw early this morning, some things that were very helpful to me. Perverse, crooked. You're not walking in a straight line. Your path is crooked. It brings in, does it not, the ideas of your talk and your walk are not lining up. Does it not bring in the ideas of we can be praying, we can be talking, but there's something that's not lining up with our praying and our talking. And the the obvious thing that we see is that here we have unbelief. That's the surface thing that we see. So we can be praying, and we can be praying quite eloquently, as we often do, but lurking inside of our hearts, we just don't believe. There's something perverse about that. Not in some gross, wicked way, but there's something crooked about that. It's not straight. It's not lining up. Because, as we've said before, talk is very cheap. And so, as James teaches us, we can say that we have faith. We can pray a good prayer even. Again, what comes out of our mouth? Talk is cheap. But James says, show me your faith through some evidence. Because genuine faith will express itself in some ways. And James teaches us that it will express itself by works. What is in our heart, if it's genuine, there will be an expression, a manifestation. It will look like something. Works. Now, that that always makes uh, folks like myself and those in our circles a little uncomfortable. You start talking about works. Uh-oh, we're talking about works. But we're, we're never putting the, the cart before the horse here. It's never works in order to, in order to impress God, in order to gain merit, in order to anything. It's not works in order to. It's works as an expression of. So what's genuine in our heart by way of faith will give expression in works or another word you can use is in action there will be action and this starts to get a little bit more practical i think because when we're talking about taking a step of faith we're talking about action and so we can say we believe god all we like but if we're not willing to take an action an act to take a step of faith then it's really just all talk. Another word that we can maybe can be helpful for us is work or action or obedience. There's a sense where faith, real faith, 
again, it's not just talk and it's not just this cheap talk. It requires uh, obedience. It requires action and it requires the evidence, which is an outworking of some work, good works. But what I wanted to um, also dwell a little bit on is this idea of faith. And when the disciples are, are honing in on this idea that they need faith, they ask that question, Lord, increase our faith. They understood that they need faith, and so they, they wanted more of it. And that's often the way we think as well. Yes, we need faith. My faith is so small. Lord, I need, I need lots of faith. Give me more faith. If you remember that, that passage, Jesus responds by saying, look, if you have the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed, and it will be removed. It's not the amount of faith. It's the purity of our faith. Now, I want to just uh, pause here because this is the part where I was um, rather convicted this morning. What do we mean by this? I want to try to be clear, but also careful not to create more burdens on ourselves that are, that are not necessary. But what do we mean by a pure faith? So it's not more like an increase of faith. It was helpful for me uh, of thinking of an illustration. You know, in the food industry, if you, they're usually dealing with these big vats of things. And so let's just say there's this big vat of, um, let's just say water that they're, that they're uh, about to, to make a, a drink with or whatever. So they have a big vat. If there was a, if there was a dead mouse or a dead rat inside that vat, the whole thing is contaminated. And the, the way that we often think when we think of faith, there's, there's these elements of contamination in our prayer lives or in our faith, and we just feel like we just need more faith. We just need more to add to that vat, and somehow that will solve it or dilute the problem. No, what you need to do is you need to, remo- you need to remove the contaminant, and you need to purify that vat. There are these dead rats that often infest our prayer lives. The first, as I mentioned briefly, was the the dead rat of unbelief. That is something that will contaminate. But there's also lots of other things that will contaminate. I'm not going to go through them all, but there's plenty of them. Presumption, entitlement, discouragement, a complaining spirit, distractions, the reliance on the flesh. And this is a, a theme that is, is often repeated in the, in the Kings. And in Kings, in the second Chronicles, I'll just mention this because, again, this was just something that hit me this morning. In second Chronicles chapter 28, you have King Ahaz. This is King Ahaz of Judah. Judah is the kingdom of the south, generally a good kingdom. But this was a wicked king, King Ahaz. 
problem with this king, I mean, there were lots of problems, but in Second Chronicles 28, verse 16, at that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. He kept on looking to other people to help him. He had all kinds of problems. The Edomites were against him. The Philistines were against him. He was troubled on every side. And the Lord brought all these things. He was distressed. But he transgressed all the more because he kept on going to these other kings. In verse 20, it says, King of Assyria came unto him and distressed him and strengthened him not. Ahaz was hoping to find strength and help, but he was anything but. Verse 21, at the end, it says, the king of Assyria helped him not. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet the more? And verse 23, he goes on to sacrifice to these other gods because he's in his mind, he's thinking the gods of the kings of Syria help them. Therefore, will I sacrifice to them that they may help me? But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And then he goes on to, to remove the vessels out of the house of God, cut in pieces these vessels. He locks the door of the house. But he doesn't eliminate religion. He goes on to produce and create altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Everywhere he's producing and creating these altars, there's more happening. And in every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense. He is increasing his frenetic activity of religious activity, duties. But it provoked to anger the Lord. Now, what was his problem? His problem was that he was looking to these other gods for help. And in our mind, and this is where this is where the rubber meets the road for us, because we can be praying to God and we can be asking the Lord and we can be seemingly looking to the Lord only for our help and dependence. But all the while in the back of our mind, we're going down to Egypt for help. Put ye not your trust in chariots or in the horses of Egypt. The Lord knows where our faith is. Is it in him truly, or is it in the kings of Assyria or, or in Egypt? How did we come to faith in Christ? How did we get saved? We often think of the, the word faith as an acronym, acronym, forsaking all I trust him, forsaking all I trust him. How should we come in prayer? We come the same exact way. Faith, forsaking all, I trust him. We are not going to hold on to our kings of Egypt and Assyria. We're not going to hold on to our plan Bs. We're not going to use faith and or prayer and our church going or our Bible reading or all these things as kind of an insurance to pat ourselves around. So, Something will work like uh, like King Ahaz did. He, he was going to build, he was going to go crazy with all of his religious activity. But uh, he was none the better. We want to make sure that we don't have more faith, so to speak. We want to have pure faith. So if I had to put a title on this, it would be simply unmixed faith. We want to have unmixed faith.